Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are continuing our major study of the book of Daniel, and class teacher Doug Brady is taking us through this Old Testament book verse by verse and word by word. In other words, we are digging deep into the scriptures of the life of this man, Daniel. In today's lesson, we learn about the convictions in a time of compromise, and Doug is bringing this to us with a slant towards our behaviors and our ways of thinking. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new worship center. We invite you to visit us when you are in the Dallas area. Well, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so let's get our seat and open our Bible to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We are doing our study on Daniel, and I am excited. We're going to learn some things that I think will really help us to understand what we're supposed to be about and what we're supposed to be doing. Now, I want you to remember this book is kind of divided into two parts. The first part is a narrative, a historical narrative, and it's chapters one through seven. The second part is some far-reaching visions prophesying amazing future events, some of which have not occurred yet we're still looking forward to, if you can say we're looking forward to because those events are not going to be very fun. But I want you to see two things and keep two things in mind. You should consider these two parts to be like a mountain range. And in almost every mountain range, there's one peak that stands above the others, in the first seven chapters, the peak is this. You're going to learn how to live an uncompromising life. And that is the whole key, learning how to live an uncompromising life. In the second part, the peak is going to be Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 25. And it is a key prophecy that we're going to study as in-depth as you can study any prophecy. And we will be looking at those two things. Now, as we start this uh, historical narrative portion, we need really to seek to put ourselves in the mindset of Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so that we can best understand, really, the first part of this book. And we need to remember what's happening to them. You know, Israel is in the time of the Gentiles. The people are soon going to be either deported or slain. city of Jerusalem is going to be sacked. The temple is going to be destroyed. Those who stay true to their faith are going to have to learn how to live in a pagan culture and be constantly reminded that God is sovereign and in control. Do we in our nation ever have a concern about understanding whether God is remembering that God is sovereign? Yes, we do. Even his true believers. It just seems like 
the bad side's always winning. How could God let that happen? Gary, you had a, con- a question? Yeah. Why is seven narrative not, yeah. why is seven included in chapter one through six? Because it's part of the chiasm that Daniel used to explain things and the portion of seven, which is the prophecy seen through Daniel's eyes, matches up with the prophecy of chapter two seen through Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. Well, I guess get to that more when we get there. All right. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. The setting of this chapter now is Babylon. And you know, Babylon is a notorious location. In the past, that was where the Tower of Babel was built in Mesopotamia near the site of Babylon. They thought they could get to God. And God had to come down and change things forever, such as languages and people groups. And it's also the location of the future epicenter for a political, economic, and religious system known as Mystery Babylon, which is spoken of in, and described in Revelation chapter 17. So now we're in the midst of this location in chapter 1. Uh, the king of Babylon has ordered a number of the young royalty and nobility of Judah to be taken with him. These captives had three requirements, basically. If you're boy, they had to be good-looking, they had to be smart and intelligent, and they had to be uh, those whose social skills were well-developed. Now, to those who remained in Jerusalem and in, in Judea, or Judah, they thought these captives were, were being held as... Uh, hostages, so that if you do the wrong thing, something bad could happen to these boys. And although Nebuchadnezzar may have tried to foster that idea, he really had other plans. And he intended to turn these boys into Chaldeans, and then to use them in a diplomatic, bureaucratic, and advisory functions that he was going to use in his government. So we're going to start today, verse 5 of the first chapter, Look at a little bit about what it says there and then move on. But before we do, let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, may the things we talk about be what you want talked about. And may we come to understand this concept of an uncompromising lifestyle. May that be something that I want to live. May it be something that everyone here resolves that they want to live. May we realize that compromise makes us weak where the refusal to compromise makes us strong. Help us to understand your interaction with people who elect this lifestyle. Pray all these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which they drank, and appointed that they should be educated for three years, and at the end they would enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, why again did he want to change their names? Several reasons. Number one, he wanted to show that he owned them, that they belonged to him. Number two, he didn't like what their names meant. If you look at what their names meant, you can see they're very God-centric. 
who would name their children something like that? Parents who were all about God's centricity in their lives and the lives of their children. Do you remember in Deuteronomy the Shema? What was the Shema all about? Parents teaching their children the scripture. Who should be primarily responsible for teaching children the word of God? Parents. Not the church, not study groups, not religious schools, not anything else. The parents. These parents were the kind who thought and saw and understood the importance of that. And we're going to see how important that becomes in the lives of these young men. Now, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders for these young men to be trained or educated for three years in the Babylonian system. And I want you to see how this works. He's going to talk about the literature of the Chaldeans. He's going to talk about the language of the Chaldeans. He wants them to learn how to eat Babylonian food, and he wants them to be able to answer to Babylonian names. Now, why does he think they need to be able to eat Babylonian food? Well, they're going to be involved in state dinners. They're going to be involved in diplomatic negotiations. He is going to use these guys uh, in his government. They need to be well prepared. That's why they needed to have social skills that were well developed. He wanted all that. Now, we used to, I can remember in our nation, call that brainwashing. We've changed the names for that now. We call it reprogramming or sensitivity training. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is putting an all-out effort here to brainwash these young men. I know we're living in a pagan society today, but what I'm saying is, do we really have that kind of brainwashing going on today? Is, our, is it really true that those who are in control are trying to change the mind of the young people in our nation? To what degree? I did some research, and I was astounded. Let's look first at a guy named Charles Francis Potter. He wrote a book called Humanism, a New Religion. He said this, education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism, and every public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday schools meeting an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching. Think about this a second. Uh, there's been some calculations between when you start school and you get out of high school, they've got 11,000 hours of time that you're going to be in school. How does that compare to any other source? Other than the home, it doesn't. There's a guy named Charles M. Pierce, I found, who's a Harvard psychiatrist. He was speaking as an expert in public education in the International Education Seminar, and he said this, every child in America entering school at the age of five is mentally ill. Mentally ill. Because he comes to school with certain allegiances to our founding fathers towards our elected officials, toward his parents, toward a belief in a supernatural being, and toward the sovereignty of this nation as a separate entity. It's up to you as teachers to make all of these six children well by creating international child of the future. The international child of the future. 
and returning these children to mental wellness as opposed to being mentally ill. Lawrence Krauss, a physics professor at Arizona State University uh, on YouTube, said this, We need to encourage our children to question freely and try to think for themselves. Well, I would agree with that. Anything we do that counters that is unfair to them. If you're introducing it as reality, if you're telling your kids the world is 6,000 years old and they shouldn't believe scientists because there is no way humans are related to other animals and don't believe any of that stuff you learned in school or take your kids out of school because they're learning something, that is like the Taliban on some level, which is an extreme form of child abuse. Well, Don, that means you and I have strongly participated in child abuse. I married a woman who was extremely child abused because that's what her parents and her mother particularly taught her. There was a book co-written by Martha Feynman and Karen Worthington, What is Right for Children, Competing Paradigms of Religion and Human Rights. And it's by the title, I wouldn't want to read that book. But let me tell you something it says in that book. The risk that parents or private schools unfairly impose hierarchical or oppressive beliefs on their children is magnified by the absence of state oversight or the application of any particular education standards. Public education should be mandatory and universal. That's the way they think. And some of these are not real recent. I want you to think these were all done in the last couple of years. This is the way they think. They want to indoctrinate our children. Yes. After the last election, there was one politician that suggested that everyone who voted for Trump should go to the education camp. Re-education camp. Yep. Yep. I was feeling really good when I came in here this morning. <laughs> are you looking back on your re-education? Oh, yes. The, the, one of the first things that I, I quoted to you was from a, a seminar that occurred in, in 1973. Yeah, it has. I wanted us to see that. Now, let's go on because we're going to see a, a key point here in the book of Daniel. And it has to do with Daniel's decision. And it's in verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he was ordered to drink. He decided early on that he would not disobey God's law. And you need to understand the key principle involved because this is absolutely foundational to an uncompromising life. Number one, we must resolve to radically obey God's precepts. We have to make that decision in our life. Number two of that key principle is this. And decide what you're going to do when the temptation or test comes long before the temptation or test ever arrives. I can remember uh, a guy who uh, was interested in me when I was in high school, and he would share some things with me. And he said, Doug, let me give you an example of this. Don't decide for the first time what you're going to do if you're down at White Rock Lake in the back seat of your car with your date, that's not the time to decide. You need to make that decision long before then. 
It's this same concept that you have to decide ahead of time, make a decision, and then plan what you're going to do when the test comes. How are you going to deal with it? How are you going to extricate yourself or boldly go where other people refuse to go? Now let's look for just a second at this verb here because I think it's important to understand. Made up his mind. What does that mean? Well, the verb here in the Hebrew is sum, and it can mean a number of different things based on the context, to put, to place, to set, to appoint, to make. But the concept here is whatever it means to do in the context, it's intentional. Do you understand that? It is intentional. Now, the grammar here, it's called stem, which is just a simple causal action, but it's imperfect tense. And that's what's important to understand here, imperfect tense. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you a scholarly definition of imperfect tense to start with. The imperfect expresses an action, process, or condition which is incomplete and which is preliminary to its completion. Now, what does that mean? Well, I hope nobody takes offense to this, but let's say that you're a smoker. And you've been smoking for a while. And you're going to decide to stop smoking. And you make a decision, I'm not going to smoke anymore. That's the first part of this process of imperfect. But will that be the only time you have to make that decision? No. Next time you're with somebody and they bring out a cigarette and then they, hey, here, would you like one? You have to make that decision again. Or after a meal, if you're used to smoking a cigarette after a meal... You're going to have to make a decision again. The decisions are continuing. They start at this point, but then they go on. And so we need to see that this making up of a mind, we, we want to come to understand what that really means. Now, Daniel made this decision in the past, but he'll complete the process as he maintains that decision in the future. You see, Hananiah made this pro same decision with Daniel. But then there was a golden image that was set up. And Ananiah has to make that decision again. And Daniel is going to have to decide, does he keep praying towards Jerusalem from his upper room? Or does he want to spend the night in the lion's den? That decision is going to have to be made. But he made it now at the very start. Here's a 15, 16-year-old boy who is making this decision that's going to have life-altering consequences. Now... If you look in the New American Standard, as I quoted, it says, but Daniel made up his mind. If you look in the King James, it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart. Look in the ESV, it says, Daniel resolved that he would not. I think as I've studied these words, the best translation is an amalgamation, but Daniel resolved in his heart. Why resolved? Because a resolution to me is stronger than making up your mind. He may, he resolved, I'm not going to do this. You can know things in your mind, but they're not as strong as if they're really part of what's in your heart. And that's why I think he resolved in his heart because the heart can control the mind. And so he made this decision. Why? Because the word of God had not just been a mental understanding, but the Holy Spirit in his life had burned it down into his heart. And he knew it. Why? Because his parents taught it to him. 
And we need to come to understand that. You see, your life is really the sum of responses you have made towards God. When you come to know what God wants, what you do next is your decision. He's not going to force you. You're going to get to decide what you're going to do. How you respond to your Lord reflects what you believe about him. Can you trust him? Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19? And Jesus said, this is what you need to do. And he said his face grew sad because he wasn't going to do that and he turned and left. That man walked out of history because he refused to obey. Jesus gave a similar opportunity to Peter, John, and Paul, and they responded in the affirmative. And the Lord used them to change the world. But the rich young ruler completely disappeared from the pages of history. Didn't have to be that way, but that was the sum of his choice. That was the result of the decision he made. You make decisions like that, and you're going to have to decide. Now, are these decisions always easy? Absolutely not. In fact, Satan's going to make them as hard as he possibly can on you, as hard as the Lord will allow him to. Do you remember what Jesus said to Paul? Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. Jesus said, I intervene. He's not going to be allowed to. No. Jesus said, I pray for you that after you come back from the fall, that you will strengthen your brothers, that you will use this event to help others be strong. You know, you think about this. My grandmother was an awesome cook, and she taught me how to make pancakes. And these pancakes are special, and if you ask me for the recipe, I won't give it to you. I'm sorry. It won't. But one of the things she said always to do, you're not giving it to anybody either. One of the, she made me promise that I wouldn't. One of the things you do is you sift the flour and the baking powder and the baking soda together in a sifter. And she would pour them in this sifter and, and squeeze the handle and they would come out very fine. And I've always thought about this. You know, you think about how you put stuff into the sifter and you think about what comes out of the sifter, but you never think about what's going on in the sifter. Unless, of course, you were Peter. And I have found that I've been put in the sifter before. It's not fun in the sifter, but you come out in the right way if you make the right decision. So how will we respond to the call of living an uncompromising life in a pagan world? God calls us to such a life. Did Jesus live an uncompromising life? Absolutely he did. He lived an uncompromising life. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah chose to live that way. Daniel and his friends chose to compromise. Now, what do you mean? You just told me they, they chose an uncompromising life. What do you mean they chose to compromise? Here, here's, here's the way this works. I'm going to use myself as an example. Number one, I'm in a business where we compromise all the time. Every time I file a lawsuit, the judge will almost invariably send us to mediation. In mediation, it's a question whether you compromise with the other side or not. When you're in real estate transactions, what are they all about? They're always about compromise. Can you work something out that both sides can come together? If you're married, does compromise ever get involved in that? Don't say no or you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> 
How about raising children? Is that about compromise? Yes. Over and over and over, we compromise. Daniel said, you know what? We're going to learn the literature and language of the Chaldeans. In fact, we're going to do everything we can to excel in those things, and they did, as you will see. Daniel allowed them to change their names, and when they called him Belteshazzar, he responded. But when they told him to eat the food, the king's food, and to drink the king's wine, he said, no. Now, why did they make that decision that way? Because there was no direct biblical prohibition against uh, learning the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. There was no direct biblical admonition about being called by a pagan name. But there was about eating the food. You see, eating meat prepared from animals who were declared unclean by God would be a direct violation of the Scriptures. Eating food not prepared in accordance with scriptural mandates, not kosher, that would be a direct violation of biblical directives. Eating food and drinking wine which has been offered to idols, that would be a direct violation of what God said to do. We're not going to do that. Daniel was able to live an uncompromising life because he knew the scriptures and was committed to obeying them at all costs. Where did he get that? His family. Let me give you a perfect example of that. And it pictures this pagan lifestyle, the situation that we're all in. There is a plant that is predominantly found. It's a seaweed and off the coast of Chile and southern New Zealand. Uh, here's a guy who's harvesting this. And this is a, a Spanish term, cocoyuyo. And he's, uh, I gave you the uh, scientific name for it. I don't pronounce scientific names. That's up to my wife. But he's harvesting it. But they take it and they sell it. If you went to the market, it looks something like this. And you could buy cockayuyu. And people eat it in those areas of the world. Peter and Lily, who are members of our class, uh, they've had it. They're from Chile. And they've eaten it. And uh, they said it's not bad at all. It grows from the ocean floor to a height of about 150 to 200 feet. 150 to 200 feet. But it has a stalk that's less than an inch usually in many places. Less than an inch in diameter. 150 to 200 feet. The blossom and the top of it floats on top of the breakers, the waves. How can a plant like that survive with that kind of forces always pulling on it only if it has an extremely secure anchor or foundation, its roots. The uncompromising lifestyle is just like that. It will succeed when it's well-rooted and anchored in the Scriptures. Otherwise, it'll be torn apart by the forces that work around it. Daniel must have had someone who built God's word into his life. So this principle of an uncompromising lifestyle boils down to this. Never compromise, vacillate, or give in when the Bible is definite on the question. Never. Yes, ma'am. Can I ask you a question? I already thought about on this subject. Is the Bible says in the end time we're going to be given the mark of the beast. 
in order to get food and such? Yes, that'll be declared in the middle of the tribulation when he declares himself to be God in the temple in Jerusalem. And we're not going to be here, we hope. We, now don't say hope. There's no hope about it. It's a promise. It's the blessed, it's the blessed promise that he's given to us. We won't be here. We won't. But if you are here, because you're not a believer, you may think you are, but you're not. If you are there, you better not take the mark. Does that mean, well, I could die if I don't take the mark? Yeah. Do you want to die now and in three and a half years come back with Jesus? Or do you want to spend eternity in hell and live another three and a half years? That's the choice. But anyway, let's go on. Because how do you know whether you are really living an uncompromising lifestyle? Well, there are certain characteristics. And if you learn these characteristics... There are eight of them that we're going to study as we look through the first part of this narrative. And we'll see them. We're going to learn the first one today. Uh, this characteristic that uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah clearly. Now, here again, let me say, if you make a decision at the very first like he did, such decision could lead to grave consequences. A fiery furnace, a lion's den. What are the characteristics? Number one of this eight, number one, the very first characteristics, you speak and you act with an unashamed boldness. You speak and you act with an unashamed boldness. This is what you need to see. You say, wait a second. Are we sure that God has given us the spirit of boldness? What did he say in 2 Timothy 1.7? I've not given you the spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of sound judgment. What did he tell Joshua? Be strong and very courageous. Do you remember what David said when he met Goliath? Goliath is cursing him and, 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 saying, and trash talking him. And he says, you'll come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, I come to you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. That was his weapon, so to speak. And he said, now, the, the giant had just told him, the only weapons you have is this sling and a stick. Do you think I'm a dog? And David said, I'm going to cut your head off. Now, you could say, wait a second. What does David have that he can use to cut Goliath's head off? Goliath's sword is what he has. Not yet, but he's going to. You see, that was an unashamed boldness. I want you to see, I'm not just making these characteristics up. They go throughout all of the scripture. And I'm going to show you today repeatedly on this one, the effect uh, that this can have. Now, let's look for a second first. How did Daniel display unashamed boldness? How did he speak and act with unashamed boldness? Let's start again in verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander uh, of the official that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. 
For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Now, we're not going to have time today to look at the next two characteristics uh, that, that come from this. Number one, or number two in those characteristics, is that you understand you have, well, we're just going to have to wait till next week on that. But I want you to look back up at the end of verse 8. What did he say to this man who was in charge of all the captives? This Fadashvanaz, the guy who's right under the king, he has tremendous power here, and he comes, and what does he say to him? What is this phrase here that we have? That he might not defile himself. What does that word defile mean? Well, I have it there for you in the Hebrew, and it's ga'al, and it means to defile, pollute, or desecrate. I want you to think about this just a second. Let's say that Julie and I invited uh, two or three of you over to our house. Everyone wants to have, come over and eat dinner with us. We're going to fix a special meal. And you come, and we have, Julie has the menu written down on a little chalkboard where you can see it. And you can come into our house, and you can smell it. And you can see the table set beautifully. And you say, well, we've came, and we want to enjoy your company, but we're not going to eat your food. Because it would defile us. How do you think Julie and I would respond to that? Uh, it defiles you? You mean it pollutes you to eat our food? Yes. How's Ashrenaz going to respond to this? Now, let me tell you what the normal response would be. He would gather all these 75 young men together. And he'd have Daniel with him and have a hold of his shoulder, the scruff of his neck. And say, this young man says to eat our food would defile him. Is there else here who thinks that? And before you make your decision, for this young man, I'm going to show you. And he takes his knife and slits his throat. And you see the blood squirt out of that artery, and he drops dead. That's what you would expect to happen. Now, there's a man who doesn't look very good for not eating Babylonian food. Is there anybody else here who doesn't want to eat Babylonian food? That's what you would expect from these, from these people. Daniel didn't care about that unashamedly he said, I can't eat your food because it will pollute me and defile me. Unashamedly, boldly, he said that. Is that the way that we should act if we're going to live an undefiled life? No, the reason why he would not eat the food because it was in the scriptures? I don't know if he explained that to Ashpenaz or not. I believe he probably did. The key is going to be, Perry, is, is in, when we get to it next week. I wish we could do it today, but we'd miss out. Yes. But the, he used diplomacy. He still stuck with what he, he was he told him he wasn't going to be defiled, but he used diplomacy to do it. In what respect did he use? In other words, he asked permission. He did ask permission, but when he said, I can't eat your food, it'll defile me, that was unashamedly bold. Gary? I disagree. I, I don't believe that at all. In fact, if you look at it, what does it say? It says, but Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials for what? That he might not defile himself. I think he spoke to Ashpenaz. That's why Ashpenaz said, nope, I can't do it. Now, 
Look at the chance that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, pardon me, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had. Because Daniel's out of the scene in chapter 3, and it's just these three boys. And they're marched out to the plain of Jura, and there is a golden image. And Nebuchadnezzar says, everybody's going to bow down to my image when they hear the music. Now, I want you to think. Imagine, imagine this. You're in the main auditorium over there, and everybody's standing first because we've been singing a song. And Ben gets up there and says, I want everybody to bow now. We're going to pray. And everybody bows, but Dawn and Dan Pearson and Julie and Doug Brady. Would we stand out? Oh, yeah. So what we're thinking about now is these three boys are standing out, and, you know, you got a king who has a severe anger management problem. And so he comes in and he says, I'm giving you guys one more chance. He didn't have to. What did they say to him in response to this one more chance he's given? In verse 16 of chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. That doesn't sound real diplomatic to me. That, in fact, sounds rather bold and unashamed. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. Now, our God is able to deliver us. You see that? From what? What is he able to deliver them from? The furnace. All right. Now, he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are going to, not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. They're saying this is a king who's furious right now. Is that unashamedly bold? One real quick thing here. It sounds a little contradictory because we're reading it in the English. He says he's able to deliver us from the furnace, but he will deliver us from your hand. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, they're going to be in the furnace, and they're going to be in the furnace with someone, right? Do they win if they come out of the furnace? Yeah. Do they win if they say to Jesus in the furnace, why can't we just go back with you? And Jesus, okay, let's go. Do they win then? Absolutely. They won more then than coming out. Gary, you had a question? Well, I, I don't know if it would be bold. I think it would be meek. I, you would say what they're saying to the king here is meek? They're saying, okay, okay, I don't think they're rash. They might no, but they're saying, you don't need to play the instruments again. He's going to anyway. You don't need to do that. We don't need to give you an answer on that. We're not doing it. You don't need to give us another chance. We're not bowing down. I just get the way they petitioned the king. He heated that furnace up so hot that the guys who threw him in died. Now, you know, gold, he had that there to smelt the gold, and gold's at what, uh, 1,730 degrees, something like that. I'll know better when we get to chapter 3. But the fact is, uh, they didn't get it seven times hotter. They got it as hot as they could. Yes, ma'am? It's the mixture of power, love, and sound judgment. But here they made it clear. Well, let's go on. Let's see about someone else, not just in this book of Daniel. What about Moses? Moses said, you're going to let the people go. We're going to go into the wilderness. We're going to sacrifice to our God. Pharaoh said, okay, I tell you what. I'll let just the men go. 
Nope, not compromising. God said, we all go. Then he thought about it. Okay, well, we will let you and your wives and your children go, but the animals all stay here. Nope, no compromise. God said, we leave and we go to the wilderness and offer the sacrifices. Pharaoh said, no. Moses said, okay, be ready. And then it hit. Look, you say, those are all Old Testament examples. Can you give me an example from the New Testament? Why? I'm glad you asked. Peter and John, 50 days, let's say, after Jesus died. Peter and John, before the Sanhedrin, in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 9, where he's, they're brought before the same guys who sentenced Jesus to death. If we're on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name, in, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. Is that pretty bold to say the people who could put him to death? But they don't stop there. They don't say who you crucified, who God raised. He is the stone, which they're now quoting from the Old Testament. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the chief builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In, if you read in the book of Acts, where Paul has to appear before Felix, uh, Festus and Agrippa. It says he unashamedly and boldly stands for his God. Look back to the Old Testament again. One of my favorite guys, Elijah. Now, he walked into the palace where Elijah and Jezebel were sitting and said, let me just tell you, Yahweh's real. You worship Baal and you're trying to turn everybody to Baal and you're killing everybody who stands for Yahweh. Well, let me tell you, Yahweh's real. I'm his man and it's not going to rain again until I tell you. And they turn around and walks out. Now, they may have laughed at the start at this country bumpkin. But let me tell you, after three weeks of no rain, they weren't laughing anymore. And in fact, they started a manhunt for him. And they tried to find him everywhere they could. He, Ahab threatened everybody. And then they couldn't find him. Three and a half years passes and no rain. And then Elijah shows up to one of the king's chief servants, who was a really good guy. And he said... I'm ready to talk to the king. And he said, you're putting me in a terrible position. I go tell the king you're here and he shows up and you're not here and he'll kill me. No, I will be here. And so the king does show up. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and tell him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? How's he going to respond? With meekness? With diplomacy? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of Yahweh, and you have followed the Baals. Unashamedly bold. I'm not the problem. You are. In 1 Kings, when he shows up on Mount Carmel for the battle of the gods, I want you to see what he says or what he does. First, he made this, you know, uh, contest between the two sacrifices. You take these and you sacrifice, you call on your God to light the fire. Uh, then I'll take these and I'll sacrifice. I'll call on my God to light the fire. We'll see who. But before he does it, he said, you know what? Fill these four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. 
And then he said, you know, that's not enough. Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, you know what? Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So he's trying to make it as hard as he could to light the fire. You don't pour water on something you want to light or ignite. Then he says, now everybody come close. Now you got to remember, there's 900, 950 prophets and, pro and prophetesses of Baal there. And they want more than anything else to kill Elijah. And at the time of the offering and the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me that this people may know that you, Yahweh, are God, and that you've turned their heart back again. Notice the last part of that. What is he saying? Let these people know that you've already turned their hearts back. And some of them may say, well, I'm not sure my heart's turned back. And then wham, the fire comes down. And everybody turns to Yahweh. And then Elijah says, grab those prophets. And he individually kills each one of them. Then, covered in their blood, he walks up to the king and he says, you know what? You better eat your lunch real quick because I hear the sound of a mighty rain. Nahab looks up and there's nothing but Judean blue skies, not a cloud in the skies. It's that unashamed boldness. And he goes up and he starts praying and he sees that little hand over a little cloud the size of a man's fist over on the distant horizon. That's it. Let's go. Then he tells him, you better leave or you're going to get caught in the rainstorm. And then he runs past him and beats him back to Samaria. So like 21.7 miles. Beats a four-horse chariot. That seems a little unashamed boldly to me. Look what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of your Lord or me as prisoner, but join with me in my sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. What is he saying? He's saying, don't be ashamed. Be unashamedly bold for God's word. In Psalm 119.46, David proclaimed, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. Prophet Jeremiah, he, he put it this way. I'm going to be valiant for the truth. Valiant for the truth. Isaiah said it a little differently. I'm setting my face toward like flint. It will not be changed. These men, all of them, practice this first principle. You speak and you act with unashamed boldness when it comes to the mandates of God. Would that change our nation if we started doing that? Would it change our state if we started doing that? Would it change our city if we started doing that? Would it change our church if we started doing that? Would it change your homes if we started doing that? Now, why is it that most people want to compromise? They believe that they'll be protected if they do. They won't be subject to harm. They won't be putting themselves in harm's way. We're going to learn the fallacy of that next time. But there's one thing I want you to see before we finish today. 
A final understanding. The uncompromising character has a holy, fearless courage that knows no shame in proclaiming the name of God. It knows with the strongest of conviction that where God's word draws the line, that line should never be crossed. That's what the uncompromising character is all about. That's what Daniel is in effect pleading with us to adopt. If we're going to be successful in living in a pagan culture in our nation, that's what we're going to have to do. That could get us in trouble. Not as much trouble it will be you'll be in if you don't do it. Don? You've got to know the word first. Yes. If your family didn't build a foundation into you, then you are handicapped. Can you remedy that handicap? Well, yes, you can. But you need to get to work. You need the foundation of the scriptures. If Daniel didn't know those dietary requirements, how would he know to say, no, I'm not eating the food? How did he know to say it would defile me? That word gal is used in both Exodus and Leviticus where it talks about the diet. This is the result. He didn't come up with that on his own. God said that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could get together today. I thank you for the time that we could share these important scriptures. Help me to be faithful in studying. Help me as I present these other characteristics. Help me to be able to, to just say what you want said. Now, Father, be with us today. Help us to make these kinds of resolutions and resolve that we're going to be obedient to you. And we're going to refuse to compromise. May we make those decisions now. And then ask you to help us anticipate the tests and the difficulties that are going to come. And how we deal with them when they do. Help us to be truthful. Help us to be honest. Help us to be men and women of integrity. Help us, Father, not to compromise. Now I pray, Father, for the service that's coming. Be with our pastor. Anoint him. May people come to know you. May people make decisions to turn to you. Father, also, I pray for our nation. You know all the evil that is going on. We pray for a revival, that you change the hearts of our people. Turn us back again, just like Elijah said to the people of Israel. But in so doing, Father, help us to be the lights in the midst of the darkness. And help us to understand that our light shines brightest when it's shining in the most darkness and in the darkest of places. I pray these things once again in the power of your Son's name, Jesus, that wonderful name that brings such blessings to us. Amen. Amen.